Welcome to our continuing series of eminent authors. I'm Stanley Cushing, the Anne C. and David J. Bromer Curator of Rare Books and Manuscripts here at the Boston Athenaeum. I must ask you to please take a moment to silence any noise-making devices that you might have in your pockets there. Um, and please to note the emergency exits with the lighted signs at both ends of the room. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this afternoon, Ilan Stavins. He was born in Mexico and received a master's degree from the Jewish Theological Seminary and a doctorate in letters from Columbia University. He is the Lewis Sebring Professor in Latin American and Latino Culture at Amherst College, where he has been on the faculty since 1993. His work is wide-ranging and includes both scholarly monographs, comic strips, and anthologies, including the Oxford Book of Jewish Stories. He was the host of the syndicated PBS show Conversations with Elon Stobbins, which ran from 2001 to 2006. He has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and numerous international prizes and honors. Today, Elon Stobbins will speak about his most recent book, Quixote, the Novel, and the World. Please join me in welcoming him to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enormous pleasure to be here in Boston and the Boston Athenaeum in particular. Um, I would like to use this occasion to wish a happy birthday. This is a happy birthday that is unique. It is not for a person, uh, nor is it for uh, an institution, but it is for a novel. Uh, Don Quixote celebrates 400 years this year. It was first published, the first part, in 1605, and the second part appeared in 1615, exactly uh, 400 years ago, four centuries, and just before, a few months earlier, um, than both Shakespeare and Cervantes' death. We seldom really wish happy birthdays to novels. For some reason, we do it to all sorts of other entities, but novels don't have that, that type of allure for us. And yet, I think there are just a few, maybe we can even count them with both our hands, that merit that honor. 400 years means that we're talking here about a classic. And among other things, what I would like to do today with you is uh, discuss, maybe engage you in uh, a larger conversation on what a classic is and how this particular book, Don Quixote, became arguably the most important novel ever written, certainly the most popular. It sells more books continuously than any other novel ever published worldwide. Uh, and after the Bible is a, is a running bestseller, you could compare it to the Harry Potter saga or to the Shades of Grey saga, and momentarily they will take over the landscape. But again, continuously, that is in a sustained fashion, Don Quixote is the book, the novel, that is considered the, the primer, the original source for what modernity is all about, and the one that keeps on defining other writers. In fact, in, in the year 2000, the Norwegian Academy of Arts and Letters made a global um, 
series of, of polls among writers and uh, asking them which novel was the most important. And by far, uh, most writers describe Don Quixote as the one that, uh, that had transformed them. How did it become a classic? How is it that a book that when published in Spain, a, a country that at the time was at the heart of a global empire, but shallow inside, having discovered a century plus before a number of colonies across the Atlantic, and yet uh, the monarchy in Spain couldn't quite make people pay taxes, the country was in a state of constant transformation, and it was known mainly in the literary circles for producing extraordinarily works of, of theater, comedias, comedias in the style of Lope de Vega and Calderón de la Barca, and the, an astonishing production of sonnets. It is known that the Spanish Golden Age is the period in which we have some of the best poetry uh, released, produced in the Spanish language, Quevedo and Góngora and, and Lope himself, but not, not novels. Novels were not considered to be serious forms of art, uh, a, a, a container that, that would produce something that was lasting. And yet, again, all these years later, we have this as the, the most important aspect that was produced in this crucial transitional time. How? Why? To what extent was this novel coming, might we say, out of the blue? How did it become a classic? And what is really a classic? So let me give you a series of uh, definitions throughout my talk of what a classic is or might be. I hope you will uh, maybe agree with some of them, maybe disagree with others, and by the end of the talk, maybe come up with another definition. I will start with uh, Mark Twain, who once said, fittingly, that a classic is a book that everybody knows, but nobody reads. <laughs> and there might not be a better classic, according to the Twain definition, than Don Quixote, because you ask around, and many people, as I do, will tell you that they know about Don Quixote, but they don't know the novel itself. In fact, they can tell you different aspects of the novel without ever having opened it. They can tell you that there's a tall guy and a short guy, a bulky guy and a slim guy, an older and a slightly younger, a, a man from the aristocracy, an Hidalgo, and a man from the working class, the lower class, and that they are friends, and that one of them is infatuated with a beauty he can't quite connect with. They can even give you the names of the three characters, Alonso Quijano, who mutates, who metamorphosizes into Don Quixote de la Mancha, and Sancho Panza, his servant, his companion, and they can also tell you about Dulcinea del Toboso. They might tell you about Peter O'Toole or <laughs> Sophia Loren. That is, many people have entered Don Quixote through a variety of doors that don't necessarily have to do with the cover of the book, with the first page. The Broadway musical is arguably the, the uh, entrance door to this novel that most people are acquainted with, for better or worse, because a Broadway musical is after all, a Broadway musical, and it has elements that can be syrupy and, and uh, uh, enchanting, but there are also lots of elements that don't have anything to do with the book at all. For instance, the fact that Don Quixote, the character, is also presented in the, in the musical as being Cervantes, 
and he lives in a dungeon because the Inquisition has forced him there, and he tries to entertain all the prisoners in that dungeon by telling them the story about this knight that is going to correct all wrongs. And at some point, he becomes that knight, and some of the other prisoners, uh, listening as they are, uh, join in the effort, and they start on the story starts unfolding, this, this story of, of Cervantes. It, it gives you the, the idea that Cervantes was in prison because he had trouble with the Inquisition, because he had trouble with the, the ideas that he projected. The fact is that he was in prison, but not for that reason. He was in prison because he had uh, run out of options, and at one point he accepted the job as a tax collector, um, not to not too long before he started producing the first part of the novel, and he, as far as we know, mishandled some money and ended up in jail. Uh, not, not then a, a bastion for, for the fighting of freedom and for a vision of the world that has to do with transforming it for the better, social justice, but because of, a, because of some fraud that he was involved in. A classic is also a book, I would say, that we read into and find things there that might not be there. Again, the example of this, of this uh, musical that we have. But maybe I could give you a list, as I do in the book that I just published, of literally hundreds of cultural artifacts that have been, in one way or another, connected with Don Quixote. The, the musical is just the first. There are movies that have been done, most of them, I would say all of them, second rate. And the, the ones that probably would have been more interesting never were completed. Orson Welles was infatuated with a, completing an entire story of Don Quixote running out of money, as he always did. He just left us with, with the sequences, with scenes here and there. There is a story in Hollywood that is more interesting than the story of making Don Quixote into a movie, that has to do with the fact that there's, there's a curse, that you can't really make a Don Quixote movie because everybody that engages in it ultimately will fail. And will fail because it will be a second-rate work or it will fail because, because the ghost of Don Quixote and the ghost of Cervantes are somewhere trying to undermine that effort, protecting literature from the, the, the deterioration that, that movie making might produce. You can also go to theater. Uh, Don Quixote has been adapted to the stage countless times. Ballet, uh, concerts, there have been adaptations into other forms of literature, comic strips, youth novels. There are, there's an episode of the, the Muppets, all connected with, with the Don Quixote de la Mancha. There are coffee mugs and watches and t-shirts. And of course, there is the, the astonishing array of the pictorial art that Don Quixote has produced. When you arrive in Spain, literally, when you arrive in Spain at the Barajas airport, you are greeted immediately with the silhouette that Picasso painted of Don Quixote and Sancho, arguably the most famous and arguably the most usable by a nation. I don't know of another country other than Spain that, has, that uses or has used and probably will continue to use a novel to promote itself, to market itself in such, a, in such an emphatic fashion. And this is because, and we can talk about it in the Q&A se uh, section if you want, this is because 
it, Spain has had a very ambivalent relationship with a classic, the classic of Don Quixote. Another definition of a classic is often a book that unexpectedly is read and finds all sorts of accolades. But let me, let me actually add to that, to that second definition or third definition. I would suggest that a, a classic is a book that is not read. It's reread. It's reread because it becomes a kind of a duty, maybe just pleasure from generation to generation to keep it as a container where we all deposit our vision of what our age was and hopefully what the future age is going to be. So the pleasure of a classic is the fact that you go to it knowing that other people in the past have already descended on it, some of them quite illustrious, in that you can go and open their interpretations of that classic, and you might agree or disagree, but they have been, they have been companions of yours. A classic is a book that is read not only in the present tense, it's read across time, in the past, in the present, in the future, and thus it creates a community of readers that is, again, not only alive, but in conversation across time. You open Don Quixote and you will see Lionel Thrilling telling you why this is the source of the modern novel, why you can't understand Huckleberry Finn without going to Don Quixote. Or you open it and you can hear Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge telling you he wished only the first part had been written, the second part just brought it to the ground. Coleridge was absolutely wrong. The second part is much more interesting than the first. The second one is more philosophical, much more complex. It's kind of the second term of a president in the United States. Um, the first one is for, for, finding, for finding readers. The second one is for posterity, for, for the idea of lasting, for the idea of being able to communicate with other writers even when you're not here. And that second part gives you the sense that Cervantes is now in a mode that has to do with his own, with facing his own mortality. Or you will open it and you will see Faulkner telling you, telling you as he did in a partisan, in a Paris review interview conversation that this is the book that he reread every single year because it gave him the energy to write most of his novels. Steinbeck loved this book as well, thought that the real spirit of Latin America, the real spirit of those immigrants that were crossing from south to north in California was to be found in Don Quixote de la Mancha. Who was Cervantes? Cervantes was a second-rate poet and a second-rate playwright. Had he not written, had he not dared to write this novel, Don Quixote de la Mancha, most likely, I venture to suggest, we would not remember him. Certainly we would not remember the period as the age of Cervantes. Had we here in our audience, some of the members that participated in the elites in, in a, at the very beginning of the 17th century, Lope and, and Quevedo and others, they would tell you how unlikely it is that it is Cervantes that we're putting our attention to. Because when the novel was first published, it was mostly looked down by intellectuals and artists, by the educated, as a book that was going to be for the masses. I go back to Harry Potter 
or maybe uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. A book certainly that would not last. Lope de Vega, the greatest writer of his time, just before the book came out, Don Quixote, started to circulate a, a kind of impromptu review where he said, don't read this book, it's a waste of time, it's, it's uh, episodic, it goes nowhere. Lope de Vega was the writer that everybody bet on. Everybody suggested it was going to be the one that was going to last, and he has lasted, but nothing like Cervantes. Cervantes, like Shakespeare, left us with very little in terms of biographical information. We don't have in Spanish what in English we have about Shakespeare, the sport, the athletics, the intellectual athletics of inventing parallel stories for Shakespeare because we have so little. So it's, it's impossible that a man from Stratford with such limited education could produce the 30-plus plays that he left us with. And as a result, we come up with earls and queens that probably wrote those, those uh, plays. In the case of Cervantes, we simply have this feeling of, well, it was unlikely that he did it. We have his date of birth. We have his date of death. And we have some elements of his biography that are quite useful to, to the degree that one wants to read a novel and always go back to see what the author was or wasn't. I am of two minds in this. I can tell you it's great to read a novel thinking of the author. It's also great to read a novel not thinking at all of the author, as if great books of literature, classics, were totally independent, self-sufficient, separated from their authors. And here I want to produce one more definition of a classic. A classic is a work of art that becomes independent, both of the age in which it was produced and of the author that gave it birth. And, and that is, that's, that's fascinating in, in, in the sense that in some way the classics exist in a kind of platonic shelf. A shelf of shelves where only the very best has been inserted. And often we don't even connect it with the source where it came from. That again is the case of, of Don Quixote. We know that Cervantes was a soldier, that he went to Italy, that he fought in the great battle of Lepanto, the, one of the, the battles that the Spaniards of, the, of his age thought as a crucial moment, a decisive moment in the, the prestige and reputation of the Spanish Empire. We know that on the way back from Italy, he was captured and by the Turks, and that he ended up in Algiers, and that he spent several years there together with his brother. We know this because there's an episode, there's a novel within Don Quixote that uh, tells us our autobiographical information. It's called The Tale of the Captive. And uh, it, 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 it's clear that there are elements here that relate very much to the way Cervantes himself spent some time in Algiers trying to escape until he finally succeeded. And that is also contained in the story. There's an element I personally like very much in the limited information that we have about Cervantes. And that is that at one point, before he started writing this, this novel, he petitioned to the queen, to the monarchs, to be transferred to the new world. And the idea at that time was that if you move to the new world as a writer or as, a, as an entrepreneur, it was because you wanted to start a new life. It's kind of becoming an immigrant or kind of ex a, 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 
removing yourself from your particular context in order to have a new birth. And we know that the queen's entourage said no. And, and though I, as a Mexican, would have loved to imagine Cervantes having arrived and maybe producing something that would eventually become the source of magical realism in, 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 across the Atlantic. And I actually believe that the source of magical realism without him having made it to Mexico or Peru, the two big centers of intellectual production in the beginning of the 17th century, Don Quixote is still a, a lot about the magic. He, he, was, he was denied that option and he stayed around. He had already began practicing a, a form of short novels, novelas, novelas cortas, brief novels, the, the equivalent of, of a Henry James' the turn, the turn of the Screw or, or Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, not short stories, not novels, somewhere in between. And uh, we have the impression that Don Quixote started that way, that originally it was going to be a relatively short book, maybe 50 pages, maybe 100 pages. We have that impression. We don't have any manuscripts left, any letters, any annotated uh, galleys or, or anything of the kind. So most of what we do is, is guesswork. And that guesswork has to do with trying to read in the novel for clues of how he did or didn't do certain things. And one of the things that is fascinating is that the book starts with a man uh, who is an, a Hidalgo, about whom we know nothing. And in fact, we are not going to know anything about him as the novel progresses in, in regards to his past. In a place of La Mancha, of which name I don't want to remember, that lived lot, not long ago, a Hidalgo, and, and the story continues. It doesn't tell us where he was born, eh, what the parents that he had, the family. It starts in medias res, in the middle, and goes on. A little bit like what Kafka would do many years, many, many years later with a metamorphosis with Gregor Samsa. He gets into this eh, difficult dream and wakes up to discover that he has become a huge insect. We don't know if this is because he, he, he did something wrong. We don't know if this is because he had some sort of trauma. We know that the, tr the transformation begins and that transformation is a fact. And from there on, it moves forward. And we know that the first, second, and third chapters were the, was the, were the story of this man who is an avid reader. He reads and reads and reads until his brains dry up. Now, I love, this is my favorite book. I hope you have already gotten a sense of that. <laughs> um, in fact, I think that Spanish, the Spanish language was created for two books to exist. The rest is a footnotes. One of them is Don Quixote and the other one is A Hundred Years of Solitude. Those two books are so magnificent that they justify the existence of this amazing language that we have. In, 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 the, in the book, this first book, we have a critique of reading, a man that reads and reads and reads until his brains dry up. Many of us have experienced a similar sense. We want to be like the characters of Jane Austen or Henry James or... or, or whoever you love as an author. And at one point you become 
or you want to become, or you dream like you become one of those characters. Ironically, this is a book that is also cautioning us. Maybe you shouldn't read that much. Maybe if you keep on reading, you're going to lose contact with reality. And he does. He, he realizes that he is one like Amadis de Gaula or like Tirant Leblanc, the great heroes in chivalry novels at the time. I would say it's the equivalent of someone, a little boy or a little girl, wanting to be Spider-Woman or Superman or Batman, those superheroes that become essential for defining youth, defining childhood. He becomes like one of them, except that he becomes a, a parody. He becomes a ridiculous version of them. He becomes one of them in the real world, whereas they don't exist in the real world. And now he has to deal with reality, which is what we all have to do. We have to deal with reality, in, with the dreams that are contained as a result in our minds, as a result of all those, those back and forths with the different readings. And he, he goes out and starts hoping that he's going to correct all wrongs. And he sees prisoners and he wants to free them. And he sees a, a, a lion that is threatening and he wants, to, he wants to fight it. And he sees, of course, windmills. And he thinks they are giants. And he's going to battle those giants in, a, in, a, in an emphatic way. Sancho doesn't show up until later. And I find this particularly thought-provoking. Why is it that Cervantes, or the narrator, didn't put Sancho from the very beginning, but only later? And, and it seems to me that the answer is that having a story about, about Don Quixote alone would have ended up in a, in a solipsistic, inward-looking effort at trying to understand how dreams mess us up. By bringing a friend, we have the possibility of dialogue. And that dialogue goes in both directions. Don Quixote keeps on talking to Sancho, and Sancho keeps on talking to Don Quixote. But here is the, the strike of genius of, of Cervantes. Make them different. One of them is an idealist. One of them will not accept the world as it is. The other one, the other one wants money. The other one wants a good meal at the end of the day. The other one is a materialist. And he will keep on saying, yes, if you want to look at them as giants, it's fine, but be careful, because they can kill you. Don't do foolish things. And by the way, we need to go and find a hotel, an inn where we're going to sleep tonight and, and eat. There is a relationship between these two characters that I would say has become eternal. And I am using here kind of an Emersonian way of looking at literature, literature that lasts. I would say that it's eternal because you can't think of a Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson without thinking of Don Quixote and Sancho. And Arthur Conan Doyle said, indeed, that they were inspired in, in Cervantes's uh, a pair. You can't think of R2-D2 and C-3PO without thinking of Don Quixote and such, Ernie and Bird, Abbott and Costello, the, the, the many peers, male peers, never sexualized, never insinuating anything other than a sheer, pure, a, a, emotional connection 
is what these characters are all about. And another strike of genius is the fact that once Cervantes decides that he's going to introduce Sancho, he has the possibility of giving you at least two layers of how Spanish society behaves at that time. One is going to talk as an upper class, the other one is going to talk as a working class. And the magic of this book is in the dialogue, in how they keep on talking to one another, maybe at one another, in ways that are so very different. It, Don Quixote talks in an aloof, pretentious, very epic fashion. It, Sancho stumbles with his words. He keeps on using sayings. Sometimes he can't finish a sentence. If the, if the quality of good writing is in the capacity to create character, and if dialogue is the most challenging of those challenges that are creating character, Cervantes is a genius in that those two characters open the book wherever you want and just read a section and you'll see that you can't confuse how one talks or how the other talks. They are always talking in distinct ways. However, and here I invoke thrilling. Lionel Thrilling, who taught at Columbia for many years and who believed that this was the very first of the modern novels. I will say a little bit more about it in a second. However, something, something peculiar happens in the book, and that is that as, the, as it progresses, Sancho admires more and more Don Quixote, and Don Quixote admires more and more Sancho, and Sancho starts becoming like Don Quixote. There's a quixotization of Sancho, and Sancho starts becoming like, it, the other way, the Sancho's becoming like Don Quixote, and Don Quixote is becoming like Sancho, a Sanchification, if you will. And the result is that, although those are very strict, clearly defined characters, the friendship, maybe, maybe an old couple, where you can start seeing that after so many years, she and he look alike, or she and he think alike, this is exactly what happens in this novel. They, they are very much themselves at the end of the book, and yet they are also very much like each other, like mirrors of each other. Maybe the most, this is not a ghost book, but maybe the most important ghost in Western literature is Dulcinea. She doesn't show up in the book, hardly at all, and yet she is the talk of the town. All the time there is this uh, element by Don Quixote saying, I, I'm doing this for my lady, my, the, the most beautiful of all. And he keeps on just imagining her. This comes at a time when we had a vision of love based on a platonic idea of the other. You really didn't fall in love with another person. You fell in love with the image of another person certainly when it came to ladies. And this is the, the model that Don Quixote, that, that Cervantes wants to present, the idea of love as a sublimated, romanticized version, platonic version. Thrilling said that this is the very first modern novel. I, I would even go farther and suggest that this is the novel that invented modernity. I think that Without Shakespeare, without Cervantes, and without Montaigne, we would not 
probably understand ourselves, the anxieties that live in ourselves, the, the, the frustrations, the individualism that we all strive for in a society where we share with others. They are the ones that did something in literature that had, that had not been there before. If you think of the Bible, or if you think of the Canterbury Tales, or the Odyssey, or you think of the Dante, characters speak as mouthpieces for larger ideas. Characters seldom have an inner life. When they do, it's, it's a rudimentary one. What you have in Don Quixote is a character that is living at two levels. At the, at the real level, like the rest of us, and at an interior level. He is having a, a constant dialogue with himself that you can see through his conversation with Sancho and others. And this results in the fact that the novel starts with Don Quixote in one place and ends with Don Quixote transformed. That's what the modern novel is about. The idea of the Bildungsroman, of the transformation from a character that was in one way at the beginning and in a different way at the end. This is what happens in, in many of the plays of, the, of Shakespeare too. In, in, just think of it, just as Cervantes was writing Don Quixote, Shakespeare was writing Hamlet. And both of them deal with dreamers, maybe with philosophers, princes. It, both of them deal with the idea of, of should you act or should you think? And both of them are constantly about being inside a play, inside a novel, or outside a play, or outside the novel. You remember that section in, in Hamlet where there's a play within a play in order for him to show his uncle what the whole core drama has been about. There's a moment in the novel in Don Quixote a number of things happen, but there's, there's one moment in which Don Quixote comes back after his first outing, and the, the priest and the barber, town folks that are friends of Alonso Quijano, go into his library, chapter six of the first part, and start looking at the books that he has, thinking that if, if they expurgate the, the library, they're going to cure the illness that Don Quixote has. So, the, so they go and start looking at titles and start commenting on each of these titles. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a provocative scene about the Inquisition and about the inquisitors that decide what book will survive and what book will be burned. The books that they don't like, they throw them out the window and they create a bonfire. And, and what is amazing about this, this scene, among other things, is that they are very knowledgeable. They know each of these books quite well. These are not the censors that are ignoramuses. These are censors that are quite on the, on, the, on the cusp of things. And at one point, they see a novel by Cervantes. And they, they start talking, well, he's not really a good writer. But maybe we should give him a chance. Let's not burn this book. Let's allow for the book for, to be read by others. Then in the second part, in the second part of the book, Don Quixote and Sancho hear of people who have read the first part. 
And they keep on telling them that they are not the way that readers think that they should be, that they are different. So this is a, a, a literary creation that becomes conscious and aware of its, of its standing and can debate with others if they are or they are not the way they should be. Let me, let me add one or two more things here in terms of context, and then I want to go to the personal, as if this wasn't very personal. Um, the age of Cervantes was uh, an age, I, I said a few things at the beginning, but um, I think there's another element that has to be said here for you that, uh, that will be important in terms of context. About a century before, Spain in 1492 expelled the Jews. 1492 is the Annus Mirabilis in Hispanic civilization. That is the, 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 the year of years, the transformative year. Three major things happened that year. The Jews were expelled from the, from the Iberian Peninsula, from this part of Spain. And this meant that Spain had come together to embrace a single one of the three major Western religions that had coexisted, La Convivencia is the name of that period, had coexisted in Spain at the time. And that the other ones were Judaism and Islam. The idea was that you create a mother nation by rallying around a single religion. I say this because I think we're living at a time where it's very important to think about coexistence and the perils that that might bring you to but the important aspects that are the crucial aspects that that coexistence is all about. 1492 is the moment in which the king, the king and the queen expel the Jews thinking they are undesirable. So we no longer want them. We only want people that are Christian Catholic in particular. Another event happens that is 1492 is the year in which Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And in doing so, the opposite happens to Spain, just as it's throwing out all the, the ones that are not accepted, the Jews, and they will be followed by the Muslims. It is discovering new territories filled with indigenous population that it, would have, it will have to deal with and recognize as human beings. And at the beginning, engage in an evangelizing effort and eventually come to terms with the fact that this population has its own vision of the world and will want to have its own autonomy and its own national character. And the third important aspect that happened is that, ironically, in 1492, the very first grammar of the Spanish language was published. To me, that's as important. This is the moment in which, finally, Spanish comes to the fore as a language that will be the unifying force, like Catholicism, of Spain. And when Spain goes across the Atlantic, it's going to go not with Catalan or, or with any other of the languages of the, of the peninsula, but with Spanish, which the first grammarian of the Spanish language, Antonio de Nebrica, described as the, the companion of empire. More than powder, more than the Bible, it is the Spanish language that will homogenize the Hispanic worlds. The fact that an Argentine and a Mexican and a Cuban and a Spaniard can all today speak the Spanish language is a, an astonishing feast. 450 million Spanish speakers in the world. And all of them, all of us, children of Cervantes. Children of the writer that unquestionably is the least 
enthusiast of what's happening in Spain at the time. It, it, I can't quite bring my head to the fact that the writer that criticizes, Don Quixote is a very critical book about Spain at the time. Look at how he describes a Hidalgo. He doesn't do anything. Just as England and Germany and Italy and France have already entered cap capitalism, there is this new bourgeoisie pushing forward to create a new system of uh, economics that eventually will result in a new system of government. In Spain, feudalism continues. And there's an idle a, a class that doesn't do anything. That's the character. He doesn't do anything. And, and Sancho, Sancho is not entrepreneurial at all. Sancho goes immediately to Don Quixote and wants him to solve all his problems. He doesn't, he doesn't defy him as a patron. He doesn't provoke him. He wants simply to be paid. It's a very sharp, cruel statement of what Spain is at the beginning of the 17th century. And the book is cruel in many ways. Cruel because of Cervantes' vision of Spain. And I say that I'm astonished that Spain uses this book as its main selling tool when it's really a very anti-Spanish book. And the second is that Nabokov, who taught at Harvard and at Wellesley and gave lectures on Don Quixote, used to say that there's no crueler book than this, that the author enjoys putting his characters in very compromising situations, and he's very violent toward them, very cruel, which I Nabokov, he loved to, he's like Donald Trump, he, he loved to say things to provoke, but in that he wasn't, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't wrong. There are all sorts of moments in which you feel compassion, deep, proving compassion toward Don Quixote because of what everybody else does to him. Anyway, all this to say that the, there are quiet messages in the book about Jews and quiet messages in the book about Muslims and the descendants of Jews and the descendants of Muslims. He knew that he had to pass this through the Inquisition, Cervantes, but he also knew that this was a book where he was putting, he, he was investing all of himself into it and, and, and he creates this society that is made of layers and that is backstabbing and there are dualities in it. Let me conclude with another definition of a classic, maybe two. I believe that Cervantes is a lousy writer. Having spent, having wasted, I hope not, your, your last 20 minutes or so, I, maybe, maybe you would have expected for me to say this is the greatest writer of the Spanish language, but he's not. He is a clumsy writer. He, he commits also, all sorts of avoidable mistakes. I'm not the first one to say this. There's a long list of shrewd and passionate critics that have said something similar, Borges among, among others. And he is also forgetful, for instance, the name of Sancho Panza's wife keeps on changing without any reason. At one point, Sancho's donkey shows up in one place, and then it disappears. He seems to have forgotten it, and then, oops, oh, yeah, the donkey. And he puts it somewhere, realizing that it, he, there needed to be a journey that he didn't put in. He, 
the novel is episodic. There are sections that are too long. I think a classic is an imperfect book made perfect by the passing of time. Perfect meaning a book whose, whose, whose faults are softened by the capacity of readers to go back and back to it in seeing there our own imperfection in it, but also our desire for perfection. Let me give you another definition. I think a book, a classic, is also capable of creating a nation. Leaves of grass, the Constitution, uh, Dr. Faust, Dostoevsky. I, it's impossible to live in the Hispanic world today without, it's certainly impossible to write in Spanish without thinking of Cervantes, even if you have never opened the book. Because all of us are often described as dreamers, not only those that are hoping to come to the United States. Magical realism is the, is the boom of dreaming. We are often, it's often said that we're not good politicians, but that we can dream good dreams and that we can write good dreams. And Cervantes clearly does that. I think that Cervantes in many ways created Hispanic civilization in spite of himself. Finally, let me give you my own definition of a classic. I think a classic is a book that waits for you. Unlike other books that readers choose, I think a, a classic is a book that chooses its readers. And I'm not saying this as a metaphor or a figure of speech. I think classics can wait. They have all the time in the world. And, and they, they, they know how to scare people away. Just think of how we professors and teachers can hammer the classics on students, and the students will rebel against those classics, and only later will come back to them in spite of what we said, or maybe as a result of what we said. In the case of Don Quixote, I have had many a friend or an unacquaintance who has come to me and said that he or she hasn't gone beyond the third or the fourth chapter. And it seems to me that that is what the novel is about, waiting for somebody to go beyond the third or fourth chapter. Because when you go to the fifth, you won't stop. But you have to have the patience to get to the fifth. You have to really go there. And as a result, I think that a classic is a book that is, is going to grow with you as you grow. I think that a classic is a lifelong companion, a friend. The first time I read Don Quixote was in my late teens, and I hated the book. My father kept on telling me, you gotta read it, and because my father had said it, I both felt that I had to read it, and I knew I wouldn't like it. And I opened it, and I found it insipid, uninteresting, and threw my copy away. And then maybe the guilt came back, or maybe just the fact that the book was waiting for me, and I opened it again in my late 20s, and I haven't been able to close it. I teach it every other year. 
I, uh, I now have written, a, I, I reached my 50s and thought I have written about all, all sorts of other things, but it's the, the elephant in the room. If I die and don't write something about Don Quixote, what, what kind of life is this going to be? Um, and, uh, and I, when I reached my, my 50s, I, there was something in that book that I discovered, and that is that when I read it when I was a young man, I thought it was about a fool. And now I think it's about a midlife crisis, about a man reaching 50, the age that I have, that uh, loves books and at one point realizes either he gives up all his dreams or he does something with them. He turns them into. And so I think a classic, finally, to conclude this talk, is a book that is, keeps on changing. It changes as you change. And you find in it what you will find in it depending on the moment you open it. It has been waiting for you. It's ready to tell you something. And you are ready to tell that book something as well. And in that sense, what a joyful life it can be to have three or four books that will be with you, that you will be opening, and they will be different next time you open them. So with all this, happy birthday, Don Quixote. <laughs> Thank you.